Hello. Before you listen to this week's edition of the Lawyers List podcast, I want to draw your attention to a webinar that I think you're going to be interested in. Next week on February the 15th at 2pm UK time, it's our first webinar of the year and we are looking at digitalization as a service. Is it a gimmick or is it a game changer? We have an expert panel offering some much needed insight on a topic that I think is going to be central to many shipping company strategies. So go to lawyerslist.com, find the banner at the top of the homepage and register for free today. Now, on with this week's edition of the podcast. The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. The public debate in the West about whether sanctions levelled against Russia are working is inevitably complex. The December ban and cap policy has not succeeded in curbing sales of Russian crude. After a lull, while European firms worked out how to comply with the new price cap, shipments have resumed at pace, directed not to Europe, but to China and India instead. Meanwhile, Russia's export machine has become less reliant on the West's shipping and financial infrastructure and is therefore escaping the full scope of sanctions. The products ban that came in earlier this month is having an impact, although perhaps not the one that many would like. The details of all this is somewhat fluid and will be the subject of ongoing analysis from Lloyd's List and Lloyd's List Intelligence for many weeks, if not months to come. No doubt I'm going to be coming back to this in another podcast as we get more clarity. But for today, I wanted to take a step back on the topic of sanctions and look at the wider impact that they're having on shipping. Because regardless of your view on the efficacy of sanctions, they are here to stay. And the operational requirement to stay on the right side of an increasingly complex compliance landscape, well, that's reshaping the way that businesses operate Absolutely. I think that the environment that not only shipping companies, but also banks operate in is becoming increasingly complicated. Citibank has a compliance team of 30,000 people. That's huge. That's just a team doing just that, you know, making sure that every single transaction that Citibank processes is complying with US sanctions, EU sanctions, UN sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so obviously this is extremely difficult for companies to make sure that they respect everything. And this is fueling the rise in the compliance sector. Some companies are trying to automate all of this process, et cetera, et cetera. But this is certainly becoming an industry. That's the voice of Agathe Desmarais. She's a former French Treasury sanctions expert who's recently written a book that I would highly recommend, Backfire, How Sanctions Have Reshaped the World Against U.S. Interests, is the title. And it explores how sanctions have become the go-to foreign policy for the U.S. The main idea behind the book is that sanctions are a bit like antibiotics. They are a critically important tool because they fill the gap between ineffective diplomatic declarations on the one hand and deadly military interventions on the other. But if we use them too much, well, they come with side effects and ultimately resistance, just like antibiotics. The question of whether sanctions work, well, I'll come to that in a second. But Agat's thesis about where sanctions are coming from is an important point, because whether we agree with them or not, whether they are working or not, ultimately is immaterial. The point is that sanctions are growing in volume and complexity, and regardless of the course of the war in the near term, they are not going to be disappearing. 
Absolutely not. I, I don't see sanctions going away anytime soon because they are very attractive, actually, for policymakers when we have a think about that. It's a story that I tell in the book. Sanctions are very, very cheap because they are implemented by companies, by banks, by shipping companies, you know. They have to check the compliance of their transactions with sanctions. So they are very fast to be implemented. So they're a tool that is very useful to show public opinion that something is being done. They're very cheap. It's essentially an externalization of U.S. foreign policy and EU foreign policy also. And again, they really fill in this void between diplomatic declarations, not going to impress Vladimir Putin or the regime in Tehran, and military interventions, deadly, unpopular, etc., etc. So, so sanctions really fill in this gap. And, and I don't see a scenario whereby the U.S. government would like to use them less and less in the coming decades. So this is certainly going to stay. What this means for shipping specifically is a significant amount of risk and cost. Lee Hansen is a leading legal sanction specialist from the law firm Reed Smith and a familiar voice to regular listeners who will have heard her expert guidance on sanctions a year ago on this podcast. But a lot has changed in the past 12 months. So I asked her how shipping is faring against the recent onslaught of Russian sanctions and what that means for companies. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been, um, you know, drinking from a fire hose, to be perfectly blunt, over the past 12 months. You know, I think, um, you know, shipping cert- certainly has been ramping up compliance over the past few years, given um, the regulators' focus on sanctions enforcement in this sector. But I, I really, I mean, honestly, I'm surprised, quite frankly, um, by the way that um, the shipping companies, you know, the the insurers and everyone have really come together um, to, you know, put compliance at the forefront because, you know, obviously there is a lot of business still to be done um, in, in countries like Russia, for example, um, but everyone is very, um, you know, keen on making sure they're doing it the right way. So we've really seen compliance ramping up, whether it be internal compliance, you know, there's been certainly a lot more hiring within the organizations, but also relying on external service providers um, like law firms, consulting firms, um, you know, ramping up on um, just the number of, you know, AI tools that companies are using um, to to do their sanctions checks. I mean, certainly, you know, my own organization, we've, um, you know, doubled down on the number of you know, providers we're using for, for software, things like Sea Searcher, for example, you know, we all have, um, you know, subscriptions to those types of things. It's really been just a dramatic shift. And certainly, you know, things have also become more complicated um, with regard to the sanctions, because previously, you know, to be blunt, most organizations were primarily concerned about U.S. sanctions, um, or if they were a non-U.S. company, whether there might be a secondary sanctions impact. But, you know, with the onslaught of the sanctions um, from the EU and the UK, it's really coming from all directions. Of course, arguably, shipping has had a pretty long time to get used to sanctions and having set up procedures to screen for risk for Iran, Syria, North Korea, Venezuela, amongst many of the old favourites. It's not like this is a new issue for shipping companies. But as Lee points out, Keeping up with the latest onslaught of Russian restrictions has moved the challenge up a couple of scales. Compared to previous regimes, this is a different ballgame entirely. 
Absolutely. I mean, when you think about, um, you know, if, let's say you've got an EU um, owner, um, you know, you've got um, insurers that are in the UK, you know, you're dealing in US dollars, for example, you might have personnel from all over the world, you know, you've got to be able to, to navigate and understand each of those very complex regulatory schemes. And, you know, although um, you know, in talking about Russia in particular, they're designed to be aligned for the most part. You know, the EU, the UK, and the US are all trying to work together. There are differences in each of the regulatory schemes, and I think that makes it even more complicated. Um, and, you know, I, I think this sanctions package in particular, this particular regime, we've seen a lot of, I think, engagement by industry the IG, for example, with the regulators. And, um, you know, to their credit, I think they've been very quick to respond and to, you know, correct and make clarifications where necessary. I mean, you know, without doubt, every time a new sanctions package rolls out, you know, there's about two weeks of absolute insanity as we're all trying to figure out, you know, what, what do they really mean here? What are they trying to do? Um, but, you know, to be fair, I think the regulators have done a, a very good job of trying to um, work with industry and so the regulators are at least now trying to help, and there is much more clarity than there was. But the point to remember here is that the onus is on industry to enforce sanctions themselves, and the threat of potential fines looms pretty large in everyone's minds for very good reason. And again, it goes back to the point about the externalization of US foreign policy, because US foreign policy is in practice implemented by the private sector, so it doesn't cost a penny to the US government, but it is cumbersome and very difficult for companies. But at the same time, they don't really have a choice because when one takes a look at the fines for sanctions non-compliance, I think that the main example that comes to mind is French bank BNP Paribas that got a fine of 8.9 billion US dollars for breaching sanctions on Iran, Cuba and South Sudan. That is massive. So it's not a risk that companies are willing to take. And of course, the other possibility is to not use the US dollar and leave the US market, but that's that's simply not possible. You know, that's the choice that companies have to make when the US imposes secondary sanctions. I think there's a lot of confusion about secondary sanctions. When they are imposed, the US doesn't say you can't do business with Iran. The US says, if you want to do business with Iran, be our guest, but then you need to ditch the US market. And so obviously that's a no-brainer. So so yes, I mean, obviously the environment is, is becoming increasingly complex. So what about the question of whether all this is working? It doesn't take a legal expert to understand that the complexities of the current price cap are proving to be a little bit difficult to implement. The rise of Russia's addition to the so-called subterfuge fleet can be tracked via a near-daily stream of headlines on Loy's list. And yes, as Russian firms can still sell oil legally to much of the world, this channel does seem unnecessarily complex right now. But the share of exports flowing through it is rising. Russia's crude is now running through grey networks, which do not recognise the price cap, but are not illegal because they use non-Western logistics and deliver to countries that are not part of the blockade. So, given all of this, should we be questioning what the point of all this additional cost and risk is for? Well, I think it depends. 
Um, I think there has been a lot of discussions about this in the context of Russia recently. You know, I think the debate is very strong in some European countries. I'm, I'm French, as I will have heard from my accent, and the debate is especially strong. Do sanctions work? I think that if we ask, do sanctions work? We first have to wonder what is the point and the objective of sanctions. And in, in the case of Russia, I'm going to take it as an example. I think there were three main objectives for sanctions against Russia. I think the first one is to send a diplomatic message of unity to Ukraine and of transatlantic cooperation. Because I don't think that Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin was expecting such tough sanctions from Western countries and such Western unity. So from that perspective, I would say mission accomplished. And the second objective, I think there has been a lot of confusion about that one. I don't think it was ever about an economic collapse in Russia. I don't think this is possible when we're talking about the ninth largest economy in the world. The idea is to make it more difficult economically, financially, and technologically for Russia to wage war against Ukraine. And so there was a recession in Russia last year, recession maybe 3%, 4%. That is smaller than I was expecting in the beginning. But still, that is significant. We're talking about thousands of billions of US dollars lost um, in GDP. And that is going to make it more difficult for the Kremlin to wage war. At some point, the Kremlin will have to make choices while preserving social stability, which, which all comes at a cost. But what this points to is the fact that sanctions are a long-term tool. Their impact is slow, cumulative, gradual. And so that is the problem because sometimes we would like to see sanctions as a magic tool that will completely change things from one day to another. And finally, a third objective, it's about the Russian energy sector, a slow asphyxiation of the energy sector in Russia. And this comes via restrictions on the ability of Russian energy firms to get financing and technology in Western countries. And this will be a key problem for Russian energy firms because they need to develop new fields in the Arctic, but they won't be able to do that without Western technology. So if we take the Russia example, yes, sanctions work. However, it's it's not always the case that they work, but they still remain a, a valuable tool, I would say. To add to the complications, sanctions are no longer purely a Western prerogative. The system is fragmenting before our eyes. China is increasingly assertive on the world stage and in introducing sanctions in support of its foreign policy goals. Iran has issued its own counter-sanctions to those levelled at Tehran, which some in the industry fear could threaten freedom of navigation in the Middle East Gulf, ultimately, if the bite matches the bark. The situation adds up to a pretty monster-sized headache. And pleas of, I'm just a simple ship owner, all of this is world politics stuff and above my pay grade, I'm afraid are unlikely to be heeded. I use the word fragmentation in the book, and I think that there is a huge risk that we could have a more fragmented financial system in the future. Actually, it all goes back to the sanctions resistance concept that I mentioned earlier in our conversation. Because what I am seeing and what I've heard from people I have talked to is that there is a rise in Chinese alternatives to all of the Western financial systems. And this sanctions resistance movement is taking place in three spheres mainly. The first one is de-dollarization. A number of companies actually do not want to use the US dollar anymore to shield themselves or vaccinate themselves against sanctions. And when one takes a look at Russia-China bilateral trade, actually something is very interesting. They have been using mostly Russian rubles and Chinese renminbi to do trade with each other since 2020. And this is not a random thing, of course. This is all part of a strategy. 
The second thing is alternatives to Swift, because you can de-dollarize, but if you still use Swift, well, you're liable to US sanctions. And I think there was a wake-up moment for rogue countries, you know, the Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, the, the list is very long. In 2012, when the US, well, cut off the access of Iranian banks to SWIFT. I say the US, it's it's not entirely true. SWIFT cut off the access under US pressure is, is a more correct way to put it. And this was really a, a wake-up moment. And since then, China, but also Russia, have been busy building their own financial systems. And China, for instance, has an alternative to SWIFT called SIPS. And it, it just works. It is China's plan B in case from one day to another, it could be cut up from SWIFT. And finally, the third tool is central bank digital currencies. 300 million Chinese people already use such a digital currency, and this is completely immune to US sanctions. So the, the story that I try to tell in the book is that none of these tools in themselves or in isolation would be enough to gradually dent the effectiveness of US sanctions, but taken together, they are increasingly giving countries and companies tools to completely bypass the Western financial system. And this could gradually decrease the effectiveness of US sanctions. All of which is not sounding like good news for an industry that is currently struggling with the relatively simple task of navigating US, EU and UK sanctions, which at least point in the same direction, if not exactly match up on the detail. So what is it that we should be looking out for next as we consider how to beef up the maritime sector's compliance muscle? Well, I think there are two things to keep an eye on. The first one is that if this happens, if this scenario of sanctions resistance happens, I think that it means that Western countries will have no leverage anymore against China or Russia or Iran. I think that would be a very dangerous world to live in. And actually, it would also mean that terror groups or groups involved in nuclear proliferation would also be able to do clandestine activities while remaining completely under the radar. Because at the moment, to detect... Um, clandestine activities, illegal stuff. A number of countries rely on combing through financial transactions. So if these are completely shielded from Western scrutiny, you know, if everything goes through a Chinese seeps, I think it would be a more dangerous world to live in. So that's that's the first thing. And the second thing is this begs the question of what could be, what will be the alternative to sanctions. And I argue in the book that it could well be export controls, notably on semiconductors. We've seen this actually against China recently. I finished writing the first manuscript of the book in May 2021. And so far, well, things have confirmed um, what I had analyzed. I think this will be the battlefield of tomorrow. We know that semiconductors are the crooks of the battle. They're present in every electronic component, every electronic equipment, and also military gear. So the country that will have access to the best semiconductors will have a military advantage. And so the US, which so far controls the technology behind advanced semiconductors, is willing to do everything that it can to slow down China's advances in the field. And this is being done via export control. So the question is, what will happen next? Because China is going to double down on efforts to have access to advanced chips to indigenize the technology. And also there's a big question about this whole decoupling narrative, because if American companies lose access to the Chinese market, they will lose revenues. And I'm not entirely sure they will be able to finance R&D expenses and still remain at the top of the global technology league. 
In case you haven't clocked it already, Agat's book is a pretty useful reader on this topic, so if this has whetted your beak on the endlessly fascinating, if not slightly scary, topic of sanctions, I can highly recommend checking it out. I've included a link in the podcast notes. I'm going to leave it there because, as I mentioned at the beginning, this isn't going to be the last podcast you're going to get on sanctions, and I hope this initial expedition on the topic for the year has at least been useful. Uh, My thanks to Agat and Lee for their time this week, and many thanks to you, as ever, for listening. Don't forget to sign up to the webinar next week, loiselist.com for details. We'll be back next Friday with more stories shaping shipping. Have a good week. 